0: Welcome to the Big Brew Theory Podcast, where we talk brews, news, and what you should choose. Enjoy unique insights from beverage industry experts, big and small, from startup to stardom. Get to know your favorite brews. And now your host, Andy Pedic.
1: Greetings, beer lovers. Welcome back to the Big Brew Theory Podcast. Today, I talk with Chris Smith, the owner and beer maker at Lowercase Brewing Company in the South Park neighborhood of Seattle, Washington. Chris and I had a really wonderful discussion that we recorded back in May for the pilot of this podcast. And things went so well and he shared so much valuable information, I decided to hold it for the big major release on September 1st with all of our new content and features of the Big Brewer Theory podcast. So hopefully Chris hasn't decided he hates me by now because he's been waiting to hear this. But the episode is really great. It's long, but it's very detailed. This was the initial investigation into format we were going to use, the questions we were going to ask. And he and I kind of go out of bounds a little bit, but it's really, really a great conversation from one of my favorite brewers. So without further ado, here's Chris Smith and our talk about Lowercase Brewing Company in Seattle, Washington. Disclaimer. The following content has been created for the listening pleasure of universal brew lovers. Our program is recorded live and unscripted. As such, any opinions or facts stated during these episodes are purely organic in conversation and personal views of the industry experts we interview. If you disagree with any stated information, please understand this program is created for the enjoyment of our listeners. We are unbiased and intend to promote the industry as a whole. If you don't like any content presented herein, please find another program rather than sending us nasty grams via comment or email. If you're among the other 99% to enjoy our show or someone who would like to contribute in any positive way, be sure to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Now, please enjoy the show. Okay, today I'm at Lowercase Brewing Company in the South Park neighborhood of Seattle with Chris Smith, its owner, and we're going to talk about the history of Lowercase, what you guys are all about, and how you see the industry going, anything and everything. So Chris, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, talk about how this brewery came to be, how long you've been here, what your background was, give us a few nuggets.
0: Sure. Yeah. So, hello, everyone. My name is uh, Chris, and I'm one of the owners of Lowercase Brewing. And as Andy said, we're here in South Seattle neighborhood. We brew out of South Park, but we have a taproom over in Georgetown. And we are about three and a half years old at this point. Uh, Started as a truly small brewery on a three-barrel system and uh, currently produce on a 15-barrel steam-fired system. And really just, we're about simple and approachable beers. We're not into the ABV, IBU arms race, uh, so to speak, so we are really about balance uh, and simplicity and just really good, clean, uh, easy-drinking beers.
1: It's funny how consumers like, didn't know what IBU was until like two years ago. Absolutely, <laughs> you know, right? It's on every single reader board. Yeah,
0: but what's funny is it's kind of falling out of favor. Hot uh, and golden, right? Yeah, because it's a, it's a general indicator, but it's pretty inaccurate at the same time. Right. So it's, uh, I think you're going to see IBU, the death of IBU is coming soon.
1: Why would you say that there has been, I mean, I wouldn't call it so much as a trend, but over the last few years, there's been a lot more session beers, For more sure. session versions. I mean, if you're like a Black Raven or a Fremont, I get why you would make a lighter, fair version of one of your favorites because people are right. drinking all day. Yeah. And I also get that, you know, full sale sold into a co op and the session brand came out with an IPA and that's several other v- varieties now. And that name's become more synonymous with easy flow and brews. Right. But it seems like a lot of the craft and small guys are going after a session direction that is kind of that lower IBU, lower alcohol. Yeah. Do you see any reason
0: why? Absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the things I appreciate about beer is that it brings people together. It's one of those connecting products. So it, it's kind of like the, the role that the coffee shop plays in the morning is the role that breweries, in my opinion, play in the afternoons, Right. And not everyone drinks beer to get drunk, right? Right? It, in essence, we all love the flavors of beer. And so I actually think that we kind of over-indexed in the past few years with hop content and alcohol content. And I think you're going to start to see kind of a pullback and more of an approach to drinkability. And maybe not session, right? Because typically when we talk about session, we're talking about sub-fours. right? But I think just just drinkable, right? That right. four to six. Because right. if, if you look at IPAs today, pretty much every IPA is seven plus. And 10 years ago, definitely was not the case. Right.
1: Well, and everybody's got a super maxed out stout and everything else. I don't know if you've had one of my favorite breweries, Drew and Craig out at Drew Brew on the yeah. Snoqualmie Pass. Totally. I mean, they built this brewery in the middle of nowhere by the ski resort. Right. And they built those new condos yeah. on the hope that, you know, they had a big contract they would sell a bunch to the ski resort and whatnot. But those guys, everything they make is kind of in that four to five and a half, four to six range. Right. And they're just flavor awesome because of the malts, because of the hops. They're just, they just don't over-deliver on the punch. They deliver on everything else. I love their coals. I actually, you know, the whole thing. And there's a few others that are a lot like that where they sort of keep to the standards without having to do crazy hop overdrive or yeah. adjunct weirdness. It's just kind of, you know what you're expecting, but it's delivered in such a great way.
0: Totally. And I think that's that's kind of the that's the beauty of simplicity, right? Simplicity is really is actually, despite the name, is super hard to achieve because when we're when we're producing recipes, we're trying to think about the experience first. And oftentimes you end up stuffing way too much stuff into the recipe and it loses focus. Right? And you can't taste the individual malt or the individual hop. And so IPAs with seven hops they just taste like hops. They right. don't taste like Centennial hops.
1: Really? They don't taste
0: like Cascade hops. They just kind of have this muddled hop flavor in general, and so, so I think that's that's kind of our approach here. And uh, and one of the ways I think you are going to start to see more like independent ingredients be highlighted, and, and specifically barley. I right. think uh, I think there is huge moves coming in barley in terms of uh, terroir. Right? We don't really talk about beer with terroir like wine does it's a little bit of a snobby term but you know it means taste of place and uh and i think what you're going to start to see is that people are going to start to lean into these kind of smaller local craft maltsters uh, that never existed before right five years ago malting happened at these ginormous scales that wasn't accessible to anyone very small and now you have all these small malt companies popping up all over the place I just got back from CBC two, three weeks ago, and I saw at least five different booths that were these kind of micro craft malting companies that were very specific to a geography. So, for instance, up here in Washington, we use primarily Skagit Valley Malting for all of our uh, base malt in our beers, and they're out of Burlington. Uh, But I saw one from Colorado, I saw one from Maine, I saw one from Montana. And in addition, I also saw at least three manufacturers that were producing equipment specific to small-scale malting.
1: So it seems like a lot of a lot of companies, I mean, so with wine, you know, if you grow it one yard away or if it has one more leaf, I mean, it can change everything, right? Or if you pick one day earlier, whereas with malt and barley... I'm wondering how many nuances of the terroir there might be, like you said, being in Oregon versus being in Montana versus being in Maine, of elevation, temperature, whatnot. Because, you know, there are people that do, like I come from the cider world, there are people that cold ferment and people that don't and people that how you get it here, how you store it. But I'm really interested to see what those nuances from the farming aspect, how they translate to the beer or with whether it's what you do with it. In this building, you know, for sure.
0: Well, I think it's it's probably it's always a combination thereof. But I think there's a a few examples that we can look to that kind of show where it's going to go. And if you think about coffee, coffee is a great example, right? Twenty five years ago, coffee was just coffee. Yeah, there was no arabica, there was no robusta, there was no high elevation grown coffee. It was it was just coffee, right? Until consumers started to get savvy enough, started to ask the right questions. Producers started to get more specific with their offerings. And now we've gotten to this place where coffee is very specific in the microclimates, and it makes a huge difference. So I think the same thing is going to be true in barley is just we haven't got to that level of demand yet where consumers are requesting or going after specificity. I mean, when you go to the grocery store and buy flour, you're just buying flour. You're not buying Canadian, red, wheat, harvested in this time frame, so on and so forth, right? It's, it's just right now, it's still commoditized. So malt is coming from this commoditized space and moving into this specific space. And right now we're in the transition and I would say that we're barely just making it out of the commoditized space. But what's cool about it is that you got companies like Skagit Valley Malting that are bringing back these varietals that have fallen out of favor because of convenience, so uh, there, there's basically two different types of barley uh, that we use in both brewing and uh, distilling. Uh, one's called six row and one's called two row and six row is prized for its flavor, but it comes, that flavor comes with a bunch of proteins and what that protein does in the brewing process is it makes for really cloudy beer. Okay. We call it chill haze. So it produces a really kind of cloudy product, which is not preferred. And so Pretty much the entire brewing industry has moved to two-row, but at the expense of flavor. And so what Skagit's done is they found a six-row varietal called Alba. They're bringing it back. They're planting it in Burlington. And they found that the microclimate of Burlington is specific enough that it produces very low protein levels in this historically high-protein varietal. But it provides awesome flavor.
1: Is... Uh is WSU up in Mount Vernon doing anything with that? I know there's sure. a ton of cider apple varieties and hops.
0: Yeah, so they've they have a breeding um, what is it? They have the WSU bread lab, right? Um, and so the bread lab is where they're developing a lot of these bar- barley varietals for flavor versus barley for production sake, disease resistant, so on and so forth. Obviously, those things are always important. But now flavor is becoming an equal tenant in in that kind of philosophy. So
1: do you think that this is going to you know, coffee is one of those things where there's a marketing element to it too? Because now people will buy coffee from Kenya or from India or some specific place because there's a causal element or because right. it's got a unique story. There are things like teas that have to come from certain places, right? Yep. And I'm really interested to see if not only from a from a marketing standpoint, but or from a microclimate standpoint, if these terroir differences in the malt and barleys are good like a good example is bourbon versus tennessee whiskey right right i mean for all intents and purposes chemically they're the same thing yeah you know it's corn based it's made with the same process but if you're not in tennessee or i mean if you're not in kentucky it's not bourbon right yeah so i'm interested to see with how you know everybody wants to make a product with everything that was sourced within 100 miles and we're really lucky in Washington because, like you said, we have Skagit Valley Malting and all these really talented people, and then we've got all the hops in Yakima. Right. But do you think that consumers might catch on to? Oh, this is a this is a barley from Montreal, or or maybe right. maybe domestic. This is a barley from Georgia, yeah, or from Maine or from Texas. Yeah. If people will grab onto that, if companies will market that, if that will open up opportunities for breweries in those areas, because like you said, these grains can be grown and harvested in several places for sure. But you know, I look at, if you want apples, it's Washington Oregon, then it's Michigan and Wisconsin. And then it's upstate New York. And everybody kind of knows that in hops, it's like, you know, the Columbia Valley of Washington or right. Bavaria. Yeah. And so I'm really interested to see, uh, you know, we obviously are blessed with the rolling hills of the Palouse, but it'll be interesting to see beyond the nuances of how it comes out in the beer or how it's used at the brewery level. If it changes the agriculture, to, you know, those grains in their other commercial uses aren't necessarily highlighted by what geography they come from. Correct. And so beer might be the one area that can highlight for the farmers the this terroir aspect, too. I know over the last four or five years when hard cider has blown up, I hate the moniker. Yeah. Everywhere else is just cider. Right. You have to say hard because Martinelli's is so popular for the kids here. A TTB requires you say the hard. Right. Anyway. uh <laughs> There's a huge arms race for cider apples now. Yeah, you know, in Washington State, five years ago there was like 75 acres, and now there's 500, and they're cultivating as fast as possible because it's altered the industry. Right, and so I'm really interested to see if these these wheat, barley, malt producers uh, can kind of cultivate a a new culture based on the farming of that. And a lot of these also are fourth or fifth generation farmers who have decided, hey, let's make wine grapes and kind of break off from uh what we're doing before i guess grapes is a bad example apples you right. know we sell our apples to a distributor that sells them to grocery stores let's sell them to cider producers instead yep or let's juice and sell them for other means or let's make cider ourselves and it's kind of been a unique family atmosphere whereas you know maybe you have some savvy kids of kids or grandkids who now say oh i want to grow barley just for the beer industry yeah and that is something and maybe like skagit valley is a good example that's something yeah. that really been in tune so that's interesting why don't you tell me about how did lowercase get started how did you get into brewing who's on the team with you
0: yeah for sure so real quick on on your point i think i think for barley to kind of come around we got to give it two things we got to make it economically viable for the farmers which into your kind of apple uh reference is you know, those, the, the same apple producers that were selling their apples to a major food company, and now some of the cideries probably make triple of what they used to make. Right. Because the demand is there, right? right. I think the same thing is going to be true in barley. And that's kind of why Skagit Valley is being successful is because they've turned what was essentially a cover crop that farmers lost money on right. to something that's economically viable that actually produces a premium for them. So assuming that we as brewers can spread the message – and let the barley shine. And, and by doing that, we actually have to use less hops, right? We actually have to let that beer say, Here ha- here's some unique characters that the barley can actually provide to this product. I, I think I think we can take it there. But well, it's, from a, it's a supply
1: chain commodity standpoint, yeah. it's not necessarily using more malt and barley. It's letting it shine more so we can use different types, right?
0: Totally. Totally. And, and valuing it based on flavor and not necessarily yield, right? So it's just looking at it differently. It's just it's just kind of taken. It's taking the box and turning it ninety degrees and looking at the other side. It's fascinating. Yeah. So uh, so a little bit about us. We uh, so like I said, we've been around for three and a half years. Uh, we're currently we're a really small company. We did our first year. We did eighty two barrels in total production. Uh, last year we did four hundred and thirty. So so we're growing, but still relatively small. We have about. 18 people that work for us but everyone's super part-time so the equivalent of maybe like four full-time people and uh yeah it's, it's been going pretty good we uh opened a new tap room over in georgetown six months ago and uh, also sell our beer in farmers markets so we were uh, the we were actually the first brewery to bring the crowler over here into washington and is that uh, your primary distribution method for? Yeah, for farmers so farmers? for farmers markets, Because right. we can't pour draft at farmers markets, so the only thing we can do at farmers markets is we can pre-package products, and that's been a great a great venue for us because you know historically speaking, uh, breweries have been a wholesale business model, right? You have to make a ton of stuff and you have to sell it at a huge discount, and you're living on pretty small margins. But I think the industry is changing in that way is that tap rooms are now destinations. Right. And so now I can manufacture at wholesale prices and I can sell at retail prices. So now I'm not surviving on volume, I'm surviving on margin. So that's why you're starting to see a lot of smaller breweries be successful is because they can capture that end-to-end dollar versus giving it up to somebody else, right? right. And, and so that's uh, that's that's changing the way... That beer works. And so, you know, for us, for farmers markets, when you sell a beer to a bar, you rely on that bartender to tell your story for you. Right. And nine times out of 10, that's not going to happen. So, by us being able to package the beer, get it away from the brewery a bit, but also staff it and be able to tell our story, we're able to kind of get our name out there and uh, build a little more kind of brand awareness and identity. Quicker. And it's been it's been super successful for us. It's interesting how that direct to
1: consumer element has come to be. Because a lot of people, you know, know a brewery by what its label looks like and whatnot. And there's for sure that twenty to twenty-eight percent markup on the distributor, and then the right. same to the retailer, and then the same to the shelf, and all of a sudden you're looking at taking 70 percent margin versus your production to the shelf price all the way down to, you know, maybe like ten. Right. And having the taproom aspect, I think I brought this up on the show last week, but, you know, for example, I owned a craft cider company for a long time. I still do. And if I sold a half barrel, they're on the more expensive side. It's about 200 bucks, 205 into a bar. Yep. So cider doesn't have foam. So you're going to get 130, 135 pints off of that at six bucks. So the bar is making like four or $500. And the distributor is making like 75 to 85. I produce my product in Eastern Washington. I ship it here. I store it. I use MicroStar. I don't own my kegs anymore. So, you know, with all of the costs, I might be making like fifteen bucks on that keg. Right. Whereas when I had my own place in Woodenville, or if you have your own tap room yeah. and you're pouring the six dollar pints, yeah. then you're making, you know, five or six hundred dollars on that keg. For sure. And so there are several people who have sustained an entire brewery based on just having a tap room and nothing else. Absolutely. Because, you know, in Portland you have an even more Intensive. If you're not on this block, I won't drink you. Right. But in Seattle, it's opened up to that kind of atmosphere where you can have your tasting room, you can self-distribute a couple of kegs elsewhere, or you can do, you know, just just bring people to you. But this That's farmers' market element is something I hadn't really thought about before. You know, yeah. I went to the the Fremont Farmers Market yesterday and was tasting some hot sauce and some drinking bitters and whatnot. And a few interesting things, but I wasn't accustomed to seeing a lot of beer. You know, I I, right? I guess I'd seen a couple of wineries before, but now that's kind of becoming part of the culture.
0: Yeah, and it's relatively new, right? Within the last, um, I'd say five to ten years, the legislation was just passed that allowed sampling at farmers' markets. Okay, which was which was huge, right? So alcohol was allowed, but you couldn't try it. But now you can actually try it at these markets. Um, certain markets they have to apply for a license and we have to apply for the same license but it's still pretty limited in terms of what we can and cannot do uh, however i i think i think you're you're spot on which direct consumer is the way to go and i think it's the way that bi- that the brewery business model the breweries are going to start to chase and uh, yeah to your point i can sell a cake to a distributor for about 100 bucks i can sell it to a restaurant for 150 or i can sell it myself for 700 right you do the math. It costs me the same to produce each one, right? And
1: having to sell, you know, eight or 10 just to make the profit that you can make on one if you can drive that demand to yourself.
0: Exactly. And, of course, there's the capital investment side of the business, which right. you need to have real estate and you need to have a tap room and you need to be able to pay the bills and pay your staff. And so it's, it's definitely, that's an oversimplification. But nonetheless, right, there's still a very significant chunk of revenue there that wasn't accessible prior, uh, that can be now.
1: Even though, even when you grow beyond that, I mean, everybody has to think about what the next step is. And when somebody asks you in that business model, what's your plan? You know, are you just going to make a bunch more people come to your place? Are you going to yeah. get a better location? Yeah. You know, the thing is, I've used this example before, but I heard recently that San Diego County, which is one of the bigger beer markets, right, has 164 breweries this year. Yeah. And 104 of them are self-distributing. So pay one of your cousins to drive around in a van and drop off cakes. And before that bartender did not want to see, you know, 80 different sales reps in a week. Right. And, you know, some places you'd get that. You know, I've waited in line at, uh, at Brower's before and it's all the way up the stairs and there's like brewers and there's distributors and there's brokers of all kinds. And, you know, the same goes for the guys at Chuck's and Beer Junction and Full Throttle Bottles and Malt and Vine you know, the beer shops, I get it because yeah. there's everybody wants to be in there. There's an assumption that they'll bring on anything that's new. But for your everyday pubs and your local places, they want different stuff all the time now. They have customers that want to come in and have an IPA every Friday, but they never want to have the same one twice. Right. And it's so interesting that, you know, especially in the retail world, if you're talking to a grocery manager or a wine steward – they want to talk to, like, the two huge companies, you know, Odom and Columbia. Right. Maybe Click. But, yeah. you know, the other 15 distributors make up, like, less than 5%. For sure. And now, these personal relationships and the demand from the customers, especially with the bars and the laws changing where you can now have wine on tap and you right. can have cider and wine and growlers and beer growlers have gotten way bigger. The crowler has been invented. Yep. People like Growler Works have invented those fancy... Growlers that have the pressurized. I mean, it's just everything is getting so much more sophisticated that fosters this ability to have the direct-to-consumer element. But at the same time, that's bringing a ton more competition into the game. Absolutely. Because you're competing with how many hundred other breweries that are your size or bigger in our market. Yeah. So do you think when you – you sell cakes to bars and restaurants, right? Do you see that you deliver consistently to the same – good relationships or is it kind of everybody will have you on once or twice and then come back every month or so?
0: Yeah, I would say it's probably more the latter. And that just has to do with the amount of product available in the marketplace, right? To your point, there's 65 breweries in Seattle proper. There's 320 something in Washington state. And so the challenge really is to get on tap again. Right. Uh, there's a lot of people that will give you, a, give you a, a fair shake the first time. They're like, yeah, you're new, we'll, we'll put you on, cool. But it's, it's really kind of getting on tap again or being a repeat tap handle. And I think, I think gone are the days of like a serious residency where like you're going to see the same tap handle all over the place. However, it's, you know, the way we approach it is through relationship sales. It is you know, it, it's really about a, being a good partner. And we want to help that bar be successful as much as we want us to be successful. So we need to produce a beer that moves. We need to be able to talk about it in a way that makes sense from a business owner to a business owner standpoint, right? As makers, we love to like glorify our product and talk about how amazing the ingredients are and how perfect the process is and yada, yada, yada does it sell, right? Right. If I'm a bar, right, I need a keg that moves, that people like right, that I can make some money on, because I'm not making money on food, <laughs> so gotta make money on something else. So it's, uh, so it's, it's the ability to be able to kind of, you know, tra- be able to, to really meet your audience where they're at and determine what's important to them and, and go from there. So, so I think that's how we've managed to kind of grow our own self-distribution channel, is just through those relationships and through being able to talk about the product a little bit differently from like a business to business standpoint.
1: It's really interesting because you know, one of the big things in the business now is your tribe, right? You know, mm-hmm. people who try lowercase feel like they're a part of it. Yeah. And every new brewery that I go to that's just breaking out is there's a there's a brewery that's coming to our festival this year, NanoFest that's called Dirty Couch. These yep. guys are up in Ballard Greenwood area and this is going to be their first ever public event. Yeah. And meeting them and realizing, you know, and some other ones, you know, I talked to Chris Engdahl from Lantern last week, and he's been making beer for like seven or eight years and selling it commercially, but you're just now starting to see him on draft a lot because before he just made bottles, he just kind of did it. You know, he's making a good profit. He doesn't need everyone in Seattle to know his name. Yep. And now they're starting to because he makes dynamite beer. But the interesting thing I think is if you look at the metrics of a bar that has 10 tap handles, sure, you can't go without having the big domestic. You know, you're going to have Coors or Bud or both. Yeah. And then you've got kind of the the theme stuff, you know, you're either going to have Shock Top or Blue Moon. Probably Stella, probably Guinness if you got a nitro on the end, right? Yep. So those are the must. Yeah. And then in this market, you have to have either Mac and Jacks or Manny's or both. But the thing that you're starting to see a big absence of and there is a great transition happening because some people are starting to replace that Budweiser with Rainier. You know, and we're For starting sure. to see our PBR we're starting to see a little bit more different and we can call those local. But the weird absence that I've been seeing is like Pyramid and Red Hook. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't have any statistics on this. It's just an observation, but I've been seeing kind of a quantum leap from that. People think that PBR and Rainier have this cool culture and you've got all these local businesses kind of making clothing with their logos because right. they're so right. classic and whatnot. Yeah. And people have that, you know, you go east of the mountains. I would say you go east of the Rockies and you get the yellow beer world until like Chicago. Yeah. And people have been drinking Bud Light for their life. You go to Texas, you know, you're drinking Corona on a fancy Friday. Yeah. But, you know, you're you're drinking, you drink the same thing week in and week out. And people here are not habitual drinkers. Right. But they drink local. And if they're going to have that every day, you know, barbecue or lawn mowing beer, it's going to be, it's going to be PBR, Olympia, Rainier. And then maybe, you know, cans of Fremont or something like that. But the the big staples for the longest time, like 20 years, were Pyramid and Red Hook. Right. And now you're starting to see the leap from the end of those domestic must-haves to, like, your medium, you know, your Black Ravens, your Rubens, your Fremonts. Absolutely. And then your tiny stuff. Right. It's weird how those big regionals – and that would have been, like, Deschutes before or – yeah, uh, you know, in some markets it would have been like a Firestone Walker. I think one of the bigger, bigger regional beers. That's I guess they're all national now. Right. Stone before Stone was Stone. Yeah. And Nikasi before Incazie was that. Yeah. But it's interesting that it goes from this quantum leap of national international beers to your popular crafts to your micros and nanos. Right. And that kind of larger regional space is sort of a gap. And everybody knows that there's a formula if you want to get bought out by yep. Budweiser, right? Yeah. You have to have, you know, sixty thousand barrels plus, forty to sixty. You have to be in the top one hundred on the national brewers list. You right. have to have a pretty storefront. And they can get involved with the lesion and immediately have three successful storefronts, one which is right across from the stadium. Yeah. And you can get with, with ten barrel and have Bend and Portland and Boise. Right. And have existing network and popularity beyond just making good beer that they can immediately take to national distribution. You get to keep that kind of local factor.
0: No doubt. And yep.
1: now, you know, it's not everybody. Well, lots of people have the goal of a lot of consumers forget that this is a startup business and breweries sell out and let's, oh, that would be a good conversation to have on a podcast soon, the sell-out <laughs> conversation. Yeah, totally. Because if somebody offered me millions of dollars for my brewery, yeah, are you planning on your grandkids running it someday? I mean, it's just with so much turn and life cycle, it's hard to have a brewery in Seattle for 30 or 40 years. Right. And people have done it. I mean, look at Pike. Yeah. Uh, it's always going to be around. Totally. And those bigger ones will always be around. But it's someday, I mean, I think you'd hope to sell or have somebody else come in that can do bigger things with it. Not everybody wants to be national. Yeah. And there are several breweries that just want to have their brew pub and be a restaurant. Think about like uh, Naked City or something. You know, sure. you, you do it there. Yeah. Or like uh, – you know, this seems pretty corporate, but the Ram restaurants, yeah, you know, that's always been the thing, right? Yeah. And it's so funny when they they win awards every year and people think, oh, the Ram beer? Like yes. <laughs> you know, it's practically red robin, right? But it doesn't make sense. But they make good beers and that what's the butt face amber? I love that that yeah. stuff. Anyway, so I digress. Why don't you tell <laughs> me about lower cases flagship varieties kind of your favorites what are selling the most for you what can people look for
0: yeah awesome so i mean i think uh and again in in kind of response to your uh to your to your chat there about the industry dynamics uh i think they're changing and and the things that are important are small new and local and i think um specifically in relation to pyramid and red hook they just got outperformed on a quality standpoint that's kind of why they went away and the the bar of quality has become so high here in Washington that just making good beer is table stakes now, right? You gotta have good beer, that's step one. But then you gotta then define yourself. So that's where I think you've seen that kind of that,
1: that jump. But you see people like Sam Adams come out with the what was the rattle can one? The Rebel IPA. Yeah, Rebel IPA. They made a quick thirty five million on that. Yeah. But still yeah. it kinda of tried to tap into that. Let's be a little smaller than whatever the for sure, the local local is
0: yep. And if you look at the <laughs> if you look at the overall industry dynamics, anybody up in the hundred thousand barrel range and and above are all down ten percent. Right, right. And the only people that are growing right now that are that are propping up the craft industry are your zero to fifteen thousand barrel breweries.
1: It's crazy to see the musical chairs that the conglomerates are playing with acquiring these yeah, craft beers. Totally. Because if anyone in Seattle has to have noticed Budweiser's moves with cramming goose yep. island down our throats in the northwest for sure but they're doing the same thing taking the Legion and 10 barrel to eastern markets Absolutely. and they're trying to park that let's be right below red hook and pyramid yep. or whatever it may be in that given market yep. and try to be bigger than the craft obviously you're at every single bar everywhere and you're with the most powerful distributors in the baseball stadiums and whatnot for sure. but it's really interesting to see that that swapping cycle.
0: Yeah. Anyhow. And what's interesting is that the despite the fact that, you know, InBev and Miller's Coors have have purchased a bunch of barrelage, they're still down twenty five million barrels on a ten year basis in terms of production. So it's just the landscape is changing, right? And we can talk about the industry all day long because I find it fascinating. I'd rather uh, talk about lowercase. Yeah, specifically to us, like we, you know, uh, like I said, we're we're really about the approachable and and simple. So to me, beers that kind of really define who we are is we make a Mexican lager uh, that's super nice and light and crisp. So that's one of my favorites. I also love ESB. You know, we've done a lot of talk about Red Hook, and um, I love ESBs. I think they are a fantastic style because. They represent this really interesting intersection between hops and malt. They're not totally hop-dominated. They're not totally malt-dominated. They're very complex, and they're great food beers. So that's my favorite, not necessarily our best seller, and that has to do with the fact that it has the word bitter in it. Right. Despite, despite the fact that it's not a bitter beer, it just kind of turns people off. And I think the other one that kind of is, is uh, defining of who we are is our IPA. Because our IPA is 6.2% alcohol, it's quite floral, not very bitter. Uh, Bitter enough for an IPA, but at the same time, very approachable. So we have a lot of people that typically don't drink IPAs being like, wow, this is a pretty good IPA. And And it's
1: got that mid-level IBU.
0: Exactly, right? Yep, so we're kind of middle of the bitterness scale, but then kind of more on the top of the kind of floral and dry hopping side of things. Nice.
1: So where... Are the best places to find lowercase other than obviously coming to your tap room For or sure. a farmer's market?
0: Yep, so tap room and farmer's market are, are, are two. And then we are in, at any given time, 20 ish bars and restaurants around the city. Right. So we self distribute and we're dropping off somewhere between like 10 and 12 kegs a week. But just because you drop off a keg doesn't mean it goes on tap. Right. We do our best to try to keep a list on our website. It's but impossible. Yeah, it's pretty impossible to keep accurate. This is the funniest accurate.
1: thing, and it's another one of those factors of yeah. educating the consumer. If you want to support these local businesses, yeah, you have to understand the fluidity of it because right. if I say, hey, Chris – where can I find your beer tonight? Yeah, you might drop off a keg today, and it might not go on for two or three weeks. And if it's a Friday, it might sell overnight. Right. <laughs> you know, so exactly. By the time you know, it's gone. Yep. So I expect you on your website to have a cute little Google map where I can cruise <laughs> around. But where are the places that you've most commonly been seen? Yeah,
0: totally. So places where we're like where we have some residency, I would say, would well, be uh, the Brick Tavern down in Renton. Great location. Copper Coin, we make a beer specifically for. So Copper Coin and Coastline, those are both up in uh, West Seattle. Pike, um, Serious Pie, downtown on Virginia. Serious Pie uh, always keeps our pail on tap. We have a, uh, a, a fan of the Mexican Lager ground, Issaquah, at Levitate Pub. And a uh, place up in Shoreline called Hills. Uh, she pours all our beers all the time. Uh, so we have a few of those kind of like core people that just always order, and uh, that's that's what we got right now. But it's always changing, as you can I love imagine. Those. Yeah.
1: When my company first signed on with the distributor, uh, we were doing only draft, and I would look at the sales reports, and all of a sudden we'd be selling at these crazy places in. Uh, gig harbor and right. ocean shores and yeah, you know, the, that we had that kind of reach was cool. But the people that were our biggest repeat customers yeah. were these just, I mean, not esoteric. They were just f- places I'd never been before. Right. And these ones that I stop by every single week, I could barely get. And then, you know, yeah. the, the green dragon in Bellingham is ordering a bunch of my stuff and right. the green dragon's badass in Bellingham. Yeah. But a lot of people in Seattle aren't familiar with it. And it's cool to get that. But you know, when you're self distributing, it's, kind of uh King Snohomish, maybe Pierce County for you. Right. Like we you know, we were in the warehouse district in Woodenville when we got started. So we sold to the collective uh was big yep. for us because they're right there. And we had sold to uh Zeke's and Bothell and right. we kind of got that North Seattle ish Elliott Bay Pizza and Mill Creek. Yeah. We were kind of our repeaters because they were in a proximity and that makes sense. And they came by on the weekends, and they would bring their customers in, and vice versa. Absolutely. But of all the places I've done brewers' nights, and even for other people's products, yeah, it's really interesting. The ones that grab onto you, because all those ones you just named, yeah. are big beer accounts. But it's not your, it's not your flat stick pubs. Yeah, it's not, it's not what your... you think
0: they're going to be, right? Right. And uh, I think that's that was an interesting observation that i had as well as because i remember doing some brewer's nights at places where i wouldn't necessarily think we'd be doing brewer's nights uh one great example is the core i can't i always get it wrong it's either the core conceal or the cork and tap right. it's it's the bar inside qfc in bellevue right in a grocery store right right and so you know we uh, at the time we were using a distributor uh we're self-distributed now but we we're using a distributor and and our rep set us up with this count, and she's like, "Hey, will you come do this this tap takeover for me at QFC?" And I was like, "At the grocery store?" And she's like, "Yeah." I was like, "Sure, yeah, why not?" So show up, you know, and 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 sure enough, uh, here come the people, right? And uh, and so I remember uh, I was I was sitting there and I was walking around talking to the people that were drinking beer, and there was this rather young couple, right? Uh, I mean, they had to be in their mid twenties. And I was like, so we're in the, we are in the heart of downtown Bellevue. There are 100 restaurants and bars within one square mile of where we're sitting. And these, this 20-ish year old couple is sitting in the middle of a grocery store drinking beer. So I, I brought that up to them. And I was like, so you guys realize that you're drinking beer in a grocery store? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, so, so why? Right? Like with, with all these options and they pointed to the bartender and uh, I'm pretty sure his name was Brent. And they're like, this guy curates the best tap list in all of Bellevue. Right. And he, w- he worked at a grocery store. Right. And that's what was cool about it. Right. I had, a, I had an epiphany at that moment being like, you know what? We as as producers of beer, we always want to be in the, the beer bars and the coolest places. But really, oftentimes when you're in those places, the bartenders are so busy, they don't have time to talk about your product. Right. But this guy does. Right, and this guy probably has made more fans for us than any other bar in Bellevue. It's funny because and he's the dude that works at the grocery store.
1: <laughs> so, excluding the ones that that everybody knows have everything, right? Yeah. So let's not go national like World of Beer, but right. you know the the Chuck's Hop Shops, yeah. The Beer Junctions, Beer the Malt Jun- vines yeah. yep. I like Full Throttle. Yeah. Uh, Gravity down in South Sound.
0: Yep. The average place.
1: But Right. So, well, beverage place is what I would put in this next group. Yeah. So, when I say to people, Oh, I tried this new beer, they say, Oh, where is it available? Is it on a beverage place or is it on it? There's these ones that, you know, aren't the biggest selection like the bottle shops, but they do a crap load of volume. Right. So, my friends, Sam and Andy at Flatstick Pub, like yep. they, they pour a lot. Right. And in the cider game, obviously it's Capital Cider or Schilling Cider House in, in Fremont. For sure. And then it's beverage place. For the longest time, people said, Oh, are you on a worst place in South Lake Union, RIP? Amazon bought that space. It's, oh, did they? It's done. Yeah. Oh, man. I went in there great, and they said, yep, they this is our last night list, ever. Man. Yeah. So, and then there's some of those, you know, off the wall ones that always have really cool selections. But I was always really interested which places would ask for, uh, you know, what people would ask, oh, are you on it? this place? Right. Because just like you, you know, I, Launched this podcast and have tried to not talk about any of the brands that I've owned. Yeah, but I have this cider brand that does still exist, and you know we're uh, we're for sale in QFC and Safeway. But I can tell you, this is disclosure: our number one selling case account for cases is not even retail. It's yeah. the Pink Door Italian Restaurant in Pike Place. They've ordered two cases a week of my ginger and now our original for the last two years, and then in December. Twenty-five cases went to the Sundance Theater in the U District, and I was thinking, oh, like, wait a minute—the yeah, right? theater. I mean, I get Record it; they have alcohol scratch. there, but why would people want to buy a twenty-two ounce cider in a movie theater? Yeah. And then January, there was another ten, another fifteen. Now every other company is probably going to go call on them and poach me out. But right. But it's really interesting because you know when we got started, we were on a lot. At, you know, after those immediate Woodinville ones, yeah, like uh, Liam's in Madison Park. Yeah. And Madrona Pub had us for a little while. And who else were just these constant ones? And it was really interesting. Anyway, so what is the, are there any core messages about lowercase future? What are you trying to do in the next year or two? Yeah,
0: totally. I would say, you know, as far as in terms of like our kind of growth trajectory, I have no plans to be, or we have no plans to be a packaging brewery. Getting in the packaging space just is extremely complicated. It takes a lot of equipment to do it right. A lot of people can do it, but they're not necessarily doing it right. And uh, you just you're, you're you're playing with the big boys. So to me, I think I don't necessarily want to be outside the state of Washington. If we can cruise to a like six, seven, eight thousand barrels a year kind of standpoint, I'd love to have a couple different tap rooms. If there was a if there was someone that did it right before they uh before they got purchased, I would say it was the Legion, uh with that hub and spoke model. And uh yeah, it's just to me it's we're gonna direct consumer until we die. Uh so it's gonna be as 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 much as I can get my beer directly to the people, that's what we're gonna try. And we're gonna we're gonna purposely stay small and purposely stay Washington. And that's well, and uh, that's everybody who
1: we are. on the podcast can't see what I can see down in the window, but as Chris mentioned, they started three years ago with a three-barrel system, which you know is the size of a refrigerator. Uh, well, a little bit bigger, but yeah, yeah. you know I'm looking at a huge. What's your barrel capacity?
0: So we're 15 barrels on the uh, 15 barrels on the hot side, 75 on the cold side. Production capacity as it stands today at 3,000.
1: And you guys have spared no expense. I mean, I've got mad respect for all the tank manufacturers. I could rattle them all off, but Chris and the guys down at Portland Kettleworks who make yours, I mean, I've watched them weld for hours and they have a waiting list, you know, months in advance now. And these are like the made by hand creme de la creme not being shipped in. We're very fortunate because again, some of the large national international manufacturers are really nearby in Oregon. Right. I got a lot of love for JV Northwest too, but my first 10 barrel tank was from, from Portland Kettleworks. I had to give these guys a shout out. And they make those cool plates that so they weld on with your logo.
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
1: Anyway, uh,
0: where can people
1: find you this summer? Are you doing Washington Brewers Festival? Yep, Any of the other big ones?
0: So uh, we'll be at NanoFest Thursday, right? Right. right. New, new festival coming up. And then we'll also be Washington Brewers Fest for sure. Uh, we'll have some events going on at the taproom. Georgetown has a lot of cool events. Uh, Georgetown Carnival is coming up in June, like June 10th, I think it is. And that'll
1: be kind of like a brew walk where people can come see you just, at your uh, place.
0: Yeah. So that's just, it's in, in the same neighborhood where the taproom is, but it's just really cool. Georgetown is just a cool neighborhood. Old, Older buildings, really rad vendors, tons of restaurants, tons of bars. Feels like old Seattle, right? Like still a little grungy, uh, still affordable, but still cool. Uh, so we got that going on. And then from a festival standpoint, not sure what else, but I'm sure there's tons. And uh, just we'll be in tons of farmer's markets over the, Any, the season. Uh,
1: small batch releases or anything coming yeah. up that people can come yeah, and try? Yeah,
0: totally. So we just did a test batch of a, of a brand new experimental hop called Strata. Uh, we did a seven-barrel batch of that, and it was gone in two weeks. And so we were able to get enough hops to do one more batch. Uh, so we'll probably drop that kind of mid-summer. That will be a new like summer seasonal IPA. Super fruity, almost cantaloupe like melon. Uh, status, so that's going to be coming out. Uh, we just did a, a collaboration with the dudes over at Flying Lion, uh, so we're going to do a double CDA. Uh, that'll be dropping kind of end of May, beginning of June, and then we have our uh, our summer seasonal that's going to hit probably in June, uh, which is going to be our wheat beer. So, which will be a nice summer sipper.
1: That's awesome. So, are all of the new hops going with this kind of uh, this kind of? Uh, outer space i remember galaxy yeah. was everyone's girlfriend for a year yeah yeah <laughs> totally i haven't know. heard of strata before yeah
0: strata well so strata is is still in experimental phases so right now so strata is its working name uh it's probably be its official name but um it goes by x331 and it comes out of the oregon state uh university breeding program uh and it is going to be giant it is going to be uh the next darling hop uh for sure there's no doubt about it. Is
1: anyone licensed to farm that yet? I know they limit the amount of people that can get.
0: For sure. So Indie Hops is our provider. We actually source all our hops out of Oregon, which we still consider pretty local because it's all Cascadia. And they are allowing anybody who is interested to go directly to the farm. They're not going to do the Simcoe thing and trademark it. They're just going to let people dial direct. Um, and then obviously there will be a capacity issue. But as the news gets out about this hop, I do think that the acreage is going to grow. So it will be hard to get for the next couple years, but then probably moving forward, I would say like 19, 20, 21 kind of deal, like there's going to be a lot. You're going to see strata everything.
1: So are you also seeing people, you know, you talked about the hop overdrive. You've talked about doing things simple and better yeah letting the malt and barley shine for sure are you seeing people going toward more single variety hop brews that call out the hop too
0: absolutely yeah totally because you you want to let that you want to let that individual ingredient shine right so like i think about our ipa right we have uh, we just use two hops in our ipa and it's a very classic piney kind of resinous ipa and then if you think about this strata hop, we used uh, three different hops in that one, strata being the main one that we dry hopped and, and kind of let shine. Uh, the other ones were just kind of like background bittering agents. But I, I do think that, the, uh, that there's going to be a lot more focus on the individual ingredients, be that barley or hops. Uh, but uh, th- there's going to be there's going to be more of that focus on on the ingredients moving forward.
1: I think that's going to be really important in educating the consumer because the fact is, you can say that. I mean, I've also made this point before. You can say that you've IPA is your favorite, and you might have tried 150 IPAs on Untapped or whatever, right? And you might have IPA three nights a week, yep. but how many people have tasted 10 IPAs in a row? Right, I can list off what my five favorite IPAs are in a second. Yeah, but how many people can really tell you the the subtle differences? Absolutely. If you don't have, you know, I've had Bailbreaker Top Cutter IPA a hundred times. Yeah, I've had the Breakside Wanderlust IPA a hundred times. I've had,
0: is body on your list? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good.
1: I love the uh, Iron Horse Irish Death out of Ellensburg. Yeah, I love Boundary Bay right. by Bellingham. But, you know, yeah. having had those a ton of times, yeah. you can kind of build a benchmark, yeah. right? So R- now every IPM tastes. RPM? RPM, taste, RPM? Yeah, oh, right, right, right. I don't know. Boneyard. <laughs> it's a, like impossible to get that oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, so good. I mean, it's been years so now, and you can only get a keg if you've ordered from them before. Yeah. It's all an allocation. Totally. It's amazing. Yeah. But, and, uh, and you know, some of those crazy cult ones like Barley Browns and, right. and uh, Boneyard have got that just weird thing. But anyway, the point is, like, I've. I've consumed these four or five IPAs so much that now every time I try one, I base it on that because I can taste remember. Right. But even for people in the industry, it's hard to immediately taste something and be like, oh, yeah, this is pretty close to what I've tried down the street at Hellbent, you know? Yeah. It's it's very odd because, you know, at least if you drink at your watering hole a lot. Yeah. Or if you have things like Fremont or, you know, that you can kind of make as a standard because you've had it a million times. Yeah. uh, You know, I could taste anything and say how close it is to the Fremont Interurban IPA. Right. But it's just for your general consumer, they know what variety they like, but teaching them the nuances of brewery by brewery, oh, Chris uses really awesome hop in his IPA. Or, you know, now that they're doing, I think the fruit IPAs have kind of gone in the wrong direction. Yeah. But, you know, very floral ones versus very – Hoppy ones versus yeah. kind of more sessiony. All these middle nuances that just get steamrolled
0: well, by the, whatever
1: the theme is.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing about it, right? Is I think that while we well we feel that Washington consumers are pretty savvy in terms of tasting beer, I actually think there's a huge there's a huge gap that we still need to solve for, which is okay, the other half of the ingredients. Yeah. Well, well <laughs> yes, and even even take just take the term hoppy for one hot second, right? Mm-hmm. What is it? What do you mean when you say hoppy? Do you mean bitter? Do you mean floral? Do you mean citrusy? Do you mean fruity? Right? So like hop can have hop has such a range of flavors. So to your point, like it's starting to identify, okay, when I see mosaic, what can I expect when I see citra? What can I expect? Right? What, what, What do I know about these ingredients? And the more specific consumers can get about it and the more knowledgeable they can get about it, the more they can tailor their choices and really pick what makes them happy. And not just necessarily because it's a trend, right? Not because it's popular, but because you actually like the flavor.
1: Well, and there's also that equilibrium between alcohol content and hoppiness. For sure. Because a lot of people assume, you know, they say hoppy and oftentimes they don't know that they're talking about the bitterness. Right. But they also assume that. The more hoppy it is, it's also going to be seven and a half to eight percent. Yes. Whereas there are really, really high alcohol beers that taste super bland, and there are right. really light ones that really pack a punch. But people are going to start learning that wide gap between you know those three points of alcohol content and that range of IBUs of you know twenty to thirty points. Right. What actually lives inside of there is these cool hop strains, these cool malts. Absolutely. And these and if we character can, nuances.
0: Yeah, and if we can let those individual ingredients shine, then we're just gonna make it that much easier.
1: It's okay. easy with things like stouts where you can talk about the coffee flavor or right. you know, the honey flavor in something like a Coles or the citrus in something like a wit. But without varieties that are so you know, your your pales and your ESB or browns, reds, people don't really know Other than the overall flavor, what nuances add up to that bag of tricks. Yeah. And I think it's going to be really interesting in the years to come about this. And uh, thanks so much for talking today about lowercase. And I hope the people of Seattle will look for you around uh, Georgetown and this summer. Definitely at the Washington Brewers Festival in June.
0: Yeah, uh, June 17th, I believe.
1: And online at lowercasebrewing.com. You got it. Excellent. Thanks so much, Chris, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you soon.
0: Okay, cool. Thanks, man. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Big Brew Theory Podcast. We'll see you next week with more of the best local brews and news. Cheers.